Howdy, Midnight Warriors, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. We're two Midwestern movie buffs here to inject you with infinite insight and just the right amount of jest. On today's show, we're reviewing the end of the tour. Then in special features, we'll discuss comedic actors playing dramatic roles during Funny Folks Without the Jokes. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Horror films are a genre that are near and dear to both Chris and my hearts. However, given the lack of qualified entries into the canon, we haven't really had an opportunity to review many on this show, the lone exception being episode eight with The Babadook, which as we all discussed, uh, I don't think I've slept since that. That was in (laughs) May and I have not slept since then. However, because of our genuine affection for the genre, we have to comment on the recent passing of one of the true titans of the horror movie genre, that of course being Wes Craven, who passed away recently from brain tumor. Uh, so I'm curious, Chris, uh, you are a horror movie buff. I, I am. I would say that I, as I get older, progressively come become more of one because I become less of a sissy pants. Well, one would hope. I actually think I'm going in the inverse direction. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm curious, what was your, uh, what was your relationship with Wes Craven, as it were? Um, I mean, for a very long time in my life, it was just pure fear. And I mean, I don't think I saw anything until like, I, I maybe saw Scream in high school, but I can remember in middle school just being terrified of that mask. Like, and the Scream mask. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then as a young child being absolutely terrified of Freddy Krueger, I knew nothing about him other than, you know, the, terrifying burnt face and the the razor fingers and that was enough for me to know that. well and was that from other media sources or was that from seeing pictures it, it was from i think from seeing pictures and that sort of thing um i i later became like i honestly i think my largest understanding of nightmare on elm street comes from like the treehouse of horror simpsons uh episode i don't think are, you're alone in that yeah there there was one where uh freddie uh, or uh, sorry, Willie, the, uh, the, the right. groundskeeper, he, he goes through the Freddy Krueger sort of beats and, and is haunting, you know, Bart and, and the children. In their and dreams. actually, uh, in hindsight, I haven't seen really many of the recent ones, but a lot of those Treehouse of Horrors were pretty scary, at least for a 10 year old. They were, I mean, they weren't like necessarily keep you up at night scary, but they were scary enough. They were, they were solid. They would stick with you scary. So to bring it back to Wes Craven, his filmography is actually i've discovered a pretty big glaring war crime Mm -hmm. uh, blind spot in my uh viewing record the only two i've seen that i can remember seeing Mm. i might have seen the last house on the left i can't remember but the only two that stand out are a nightmare on elm street and scream which are probably his two quintessential films yeah and would you like to know when i saw those when did you see these? I saw both of them last night before we started recording. Really? For the first time? The very first time I've seen them both. Wow. And have you, you haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street? You know, I've actually caught parts of Nightmare on Elm Street on, you know, AMC or whatever, you know, in October uh, for years. I've never seen the full thing. I actually as well last night attempted to uh, watch the full thing from start to finish for the first time. And ironically fell asleep doing so, which I don't think you're that supposed to That was pretty do. dangerous. You could have been killed. I, I could have, but I'm here. So we're, of course we we're might good. be in a dream right now. That was another thing about the film is you that could never be, really tell when you were in a dream. Yeah. That anymore. would be a great episode though. I think so. Uh, so what was your opinion just of what you've seen of a nightmare on Elm street? Um, I mean, I think it's smarter than the other things of the time that, mm-hmm. you know, like eighties horror isn't necessarily my favorite type of horror. Um, I mean, and so it's, it's impressive for what it is. It's not necessarily my cup of tea when it comes to horror movies. Like I think Halloween is a much better, um, right. much better film. And it's, uh, I think partially the gore and, and just the way that Carpenter handles suspense there, but it was still pretty good. I was, I was surprised by how with, there is a lot of kind of campy dialogue and those sorts of things, but he seems to overcome it pretty well absolutely and to your point i think what was happening during the late 70s and early 80s with horrors people were just competing to see who could be the goriest and that's continued well into the present day uh but the essential setup the freddy krueger setup of someone haunting your dreams attacking you where you are absolutely most vulnerable yeah that was the brilliance of that and speaking of brilliance you said you'd seen scream had you seen it since high school uh i don't think i have Rewatch that movie okay. as soon as you can. It is a lot of fun. I had okay. seen this is the first time I'd seen it. I've only ever seen the first five minutes, but it's a lot of fun. And you know, you said that you think you may have seen Last House on the Left. I I don't know how you can see that movie and not 
remember whether or not you you've seen it. Cause that's the one that sticks with me the most. That's the one that really like, I don't, and I don't want to revisit it. It, I saw it in high school in a, in a horror class and it just like, it's just so icky. And so I, I think part of it is it's one of those kind of like, I guess kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre where the lower production value actually works to the advantage of the film in like making it feel a little more, uh, real life and visceral, even if he does have elements, like he has these keystone cops that basically, um, basically everything goes wrong because the cops can't find the house. Like, but it's, it's in the title. It's the last house on the left. What is wrong with these cops? It actually wasn't the original title. I can't remember what the original title was. Someone like saw it and sent him a letter and was like, you know, what would be a better title for this movie? Last house on the left. And he was like, that lady's right. I'm going to change it. But to in summation, you were kind of more of a John Carpenter and maybe even a Sam Raimi guy. That's I think, what I was. I, I think so. I mean, I I have of the and like I said, I haven't seen much of Wes Craven. Of what I've seen, I find him very effective. Um, but I mean, maybe that's something. Maybe this October we could do a little bit of uh, a horror war crime thing or something. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm already getting started on my Halloween movie bucket <laughs> here, and yeah. you know, starting in August and moving into September. So yeah. I'm I'm absolutely game. I, uh, yeah, I always every October I try to go through and knock out horror movies that I have just missed because there are so many. Well, and given that both of us have missed a nightmare on Elm Street for more than a quarter of a century, I'm certain that our listeners will be haunting our dreams as they should, because those are some pretty serious war crimes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Midnight Warriors, we want to know what's your favorite Wes Craven film and which of the large catalog that we have somehow overlooked uh, do you think we should see first? Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or, of course, just let us know in the midst of our dreams. You can do that as well. Yes. Stick around, folks, as Chris and I get literally literary with a review of The End of the Tour, starring Jesse Eisenberg and Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace. When I think of this trip, I see David and me in the front seat of his car. He wants something better than he has. I want precisely what he has already. David. Wallace. Welcome to Minneapolis. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm David Lewis. Oh, How are you? hi. Okay, David and David. We only just met. He's writing a piece on the tour. What's this story about in your mind? Just what it's like to be the most talked about writer in the country, that sort of thing. You're like a nervous guy, huh? <laughs> no, 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 I'm okay. How are you? Because I'm terrified. I gotta ask, what is with the bandana? I know that it's a security blanket for me whenever I'm kind of afraid my head is gonna explode. <laughs> if we ate like this all the time, what would be wrong with that? It's like good seductive commercial entertainment, like, uh, like Die Hard. Uh, first Die Hard? First Die Hard. Great film. Yes. No, it's a brilliant film. The fellow. best. Hey, isn't it reassuring to have a lot of people read you? I think if the book is about anything, it's about the question of why. Why am I doing it? And what's so American about what I'm doing? Is it fall already? It still doesn't feel like it here in Oklahoma, but I suppose we're technically there. Before we know it, there will be a brisk chill in the air, leaves will begin to turn the color of an autumn sunset, and Oscar bait biopics will begin to bludgeon us at the box office once again. Yes, it's nearly that time of the year when we gather around the dinner table with our distant relatives who insist we simply must see the heart-wrenching two-and-a-half-hour birth-to-death story of Jack or Jill McBrilliant Pants. Lucky for us, it seems Hollywood has slowly begun to buck the trend of the tedious and unwieldy cradle-to-grave biopic to opt for what I like to call a bio-snapshot. Films like Lincoln, Selma, and The Theory of Everything have zoomed in to a specific moment or period in the lives of their subjects. This is the approach director James Ponsolt's new film about David Foster Wallace takes. Based on David Lipsky's book, Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, the end of the tour follows Lipsky as he follows Wallace during the last five days of the promotional tour for Wallace's book, Infinite Jest. If anything, this ends up feeling more like a road film than a biographical one. Ponsel could have shown us where David Foster Wallace came from or how he went about amassing the three-pound, thousand-plus-page tome that is Infinite Jest. Instead, he gives us Wallace's thoughts, his feelings, his personality, through a series of discussions, arguments, and soliloquies about everything from theories on modern addiction to television and junk food culture to depression and ideas on what defines the American experience. Hunter, I'm curious. How do you feel about the recent rise of the anti-biopic format? And furthermore, for the last few months, we've been gorging our gullets with a formidable feast of fast food feature films and losing our cinematic six-packs in the process. 
The end of the tour is more like a hearty salad. So how did the veggies go down? Did you open wide for the airplane? Or should Ponsold have loaded up a spoonful of sugar to help you metabolize the medicine of meditation on masculinity, modernity, melancholy, and malevolence for mass market media? Well, Chris, I have to answer that question with a question. When you say spoonful of sugar, do you mean that this meditation should have been a musical? Because if that's the case, then the answer is always yes. If they could have made this biopic a uh, a musical, then yes, the answer is it should have been that. Does that mean that your favorite musicals are like Jesus Christ Superstar, where there is no dialogue? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, Um, it's funny that you mentioned that. But anyway, I digress. Uh, let's as a throwback to last episode, let's stick a pin in the bulletin board okay. on your biopic question, because um, I'm sure we'll get to that later. I certainly hope we do. Can, can we also stick a pin in you calling it a biopic? That's is your, it bi- that, do you say, I say I, biopic. Is, I, is, I say biopic. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure there's a right way because see, I it's think a made up word. Exactly. The way you do it is uh, it's two separate ideas, biography, picture, whereas uh-huh. I biopic. Or yeah. Wait, so, I, I mean, potato, potato. But, you, you say apple, I say orange. Yes, that's essentially what it is. Uh, my reaction to this film, and I think anyone's reaction to this film, is going to be dependent on what they know about David Foster Wallace going in and how they feel about him. Is their infatuation infinite, or are they more like me? And I suspect you, no offense, but a little bit ignorant of oh, I, i'm absolutely ignorant yeah absolutely. I, my knowledge of him is kind of your base level of pop culture knowledge of who he is it's mm-hmm. kind of a wikipedic level you might say um the only thing i've read of his is or rather seen is his commencement speech which has kind of okay. become the it's a wonderful life of graduation mm, season water. yeah this mm. is water yeah and by it's a wonderful life it's just trolled out every graduation yeah. season it's it's a good speech though it certainly is and i really like it and but seeing it my impression of him was is this very confident straightforward connected thinker mm-hmm. and then seeing this film and then seeing interviews after the fact he was actually more insecure than i would have thought oh, but anyway yeah. yeah but anyway my overarching point is that uh, depending on how you feel about him that's going to direct you if you really know him and like him then this movie will absolutely give you the feels if you're more unfamiliar as we are, I honestly think while it's a good film, it didn't take full advantage of its cinematic possibilities, and it probably would have been better as a play. It felt really? it felt more like a play, it, I, like a play in a black box theater. I really couldn't disagree more. Like I, I think this worked very well. I mean, for me, it's it's sort of it's not quite a Linklater film, but it's like that where I, I understand there's it's the base of this movie is just those discussions and the. There are several times that David Foster Wallace has, you know, these long soliloquies, as I said, of, um, you know, just sort of his thoughts on a subject. And I never felt like, you know, we were wasting, uh, we were wasting time or wasting um, the the screen watching it. And I think part of that is also in the way Ponsel, uh edits this film and, and presents the, these conversations to us, because uh, you know, if if Siegel as Wallace is going on this this long rant about about something, be it uh, Die Hard or cheeseburgers or television or um, relationships or whatever, we're not just focused on Siegel. It's not just that he's standing there giving us a speech. We're also paying attention to Lipsky, who is this guy who's you know struggling to believe that he is a contemporary of this you know recent giant of, of literature. And there's really, I think there's a lot there in just watching Jesse Eisenberg as David Lipsky, trying to kind of digest everything that's being thrown at him as well. And also like uh, you, you can see him comparing himself to every word that Wallace says. And so there's a lot that you can do in getting a close up or cutting to a face that you wouldn't get as a stage play that I think works very well. But I think it still comes down to the words. And when I and so I'll define my objection is the two kind of central theses of this film and of Infinite Jest is that we are a culture that is inundated with bland, banal images at all times. It's, as you said, fast food culture. And that was Wallace's opinion. And that's assumably the opinion of this movie. However, we don't really see a lot of screens. We see him addicted to film and TV, but we don't. I would. I kind of would have liked more. Does that make sense? I would kind of I mean, liked I, more I inundation so, I of screens. I, I don't think that was the. I think that was a subtext. If if it was anything here, you know, it wasn't. That wasn't the main point of this. The main point of this is, for me, was getting to know a figure instead of 
what you get from your typical biopic of, okay, this is where a brilliant mind came from, and this is how they became a brilliant mind. This is more a presentation of, this is the brilliant mind's actual personality. This is what it would have been like to spend a few days with him and just hang out with him and get to know him. And I think that's really powerful. And it really like, like I said, I'm by no means a David Foster Wallace expert. I'm if anything, a just neophyte at, at the very base level. Um, I knew very little about him going in and, um, I, I, you know, it still worked very well for me, even with that it, you know, to the point that I've spent the past week, um, you know, reading and listening to interviews and watching interviews and, you know, just trying to get a better understanding of who this guy was, what he's, what his function was. And I think if anything, like going and, and doing that research, it only, uh, sort of reinforces my feeling that this is a pretty great portrayal of, of a man. And, and in a way that doesn't feel like some grandiose masturbatory, like, Oh, look at, look at how great he was, but a, like, let's look at him as a person, which is, I think what Wallace would have wanted if, if there was to ever be a film about it. Well, perhaps I, it's one of those things as, as you've just articulated, it's a movie that's very much about my week with Wallace is, is probably could have been a a better talk. My my dinner with Andre, but But, um, I think I would have liked it more again, as I said, if, if it had taken advantage of the cinematic possibilities and kind of created a world or rather just recorded a world that Wallace believed existed. Another thing that I found, uh, not surprising necessarily, but made the film lacking a little bit to me was that we keep on being told time and time again about what a brilliant writer he is. And even though this is difficult to convey on screen when it's done, it's done, uh, it, it can be done marvelously, but we never really saw his writing. We saw his, we saw the things he said mm-hmm. in, in his conversations with Lipsky, but we ne- were never exposed to his writing. Yeah. I, did I that, mean, did that detract it, it from it, it at it, all for you? It didn't bother me. I can, I can totally see that criticism being, thrown at it but for me it it worked i think partially because um you know infinite just in and of itself like you you know just seeing that book is cinematic on screen you know like just just seeing the presence of it is this weighty tome of a you know especially that that hardcover is ridiculous and um you know from what what i've read and and whatnot it, it seems like you know the footnotes are a big piece of his, his writing. And so the experience, I think part of the experience of reading him and I'll be honest, all that I've read is his profile on, uh, David Lynch and the production of not even David Lynch. Cause he didn't even interview the guy, but the production of lost highway, um, which uses those footnotes a lot and, and jumping back and forth. And I don't know how you portray that cinematically really. Um, so I, I guess to answer your question, no, it didn't bother me. Um, I think we still get, uh, we get his ideas, which may not be exactly the same as the ideas in infinite jest, but definitely have some tie-ins, um, from, from what I gather. And it, I'm, it worked, it worked really well for me. Well, and it's, and, and it worked well for me too. I think my overarching argument is just what it was, which is an exploration of these two guys, David Foster Wallace in particular. I think it felt more like it would have been even better as a play. And so since it didn't take full advantage of the cinematic possibilities, that's where it detracted. For instance, imagine if this were written by Charlie Kaufman and then directed by Michel Gondry, mm-hmm. then you would have kind of had a, a little bit more imagination given to how do we portray this guy in this world that he that he saw. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I don't I don't know if that gives you a better portrait of david foster wallace well and exactly and this movie wanted to yeah this this was more about david foster wallace than it was about what davis wall foster wallace thought absolutely and so let me ask you this like because i like i said i knew next to nothing going in um about the man what was your feeling on like i guess the way that he's portrayed in the beginning and then sort of the um the way that relationship between the two uh plays out well you might find this kind of funny and I'll explain it is within the first, he doesn't show up until I'd say 15 minutes in give or take. And so before he does, this movie reminded me of two pictures, one Frost Nixon, which is the same kind of setup reporter goes and talks to this larger than life figure. Mm -hmm. But it also reminded me of apocalypse now. 
And the reason it reminded me of Apocalypse Now is that is a film about a journey into eventually meeting this unseen character uh-huh. who's who's larger than life, who and you're you all you know about them is their reputation. Mm-hmm. However, it's contracted just down to fifteen minutes. And so, in that kind of subgenre of film of what you might call the guy getting ready to meet a larger than life figure, which is a, a you know a subgenre yeah, yeah, in yeah. and of itself, kind of like Rain Man or Frost Nixon, like I said. Uh, the David Foster Wallace guy was surprising insofar as he's not larger than life. He's, you know, Jason Siegel's a very big yeah. man, of course, but the character is incredibly itchy and twitchy and vulnerable, mm-hmm. which I thought was a nice change of pace. Yeah. And I know that sounds kind of almost dismissive of him. He was, of course, a real person. Yeah. But from what I've seen of interviews after the fact, mm-hmm. Jason Siegel <laughs> really, have really you, hit it on Have it. you seen that Charlie Rose interview? I saw just enough to turn it off. I might regret this in the event that you, I ever get famous, but I can't stand Charlie Rose. Really? No. I, huh. Well, well, here's an example is he was getting ready to make a point in, about David Lynch, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then Charlie Rose asked him what he thought of the English patient. And even David Foster Wallace was saying... Are, are you seriously asking me this? Yeah. I mean, do you seriously expect but me to answer this? It, but that that reaction is like exactly what, you know, it, it was things like that in that interview. I, I highly recommend going and watching the whole thing. Like it's it's it, up on YouTube in several places. Um, you get like those moments where he's reacting like that. He's a little off guard or he gets a little self-conscious. Those are the things that I felt like informed him as like the real true guy the most i would be and, fine with that if it weren't cutting him off and when he was on the verge of making a much better point we're talking about two different completely yeah. different things but that's sort of i mean that's the thing about wallace is he can basically talk about anything and he can basically like he has an opinion and he can articulate it it seems better than almost anyone else um but you know watching that interview um then thinking back on on Siegel because I didn't have any, so I didn't have really any ideas about Wallace going in. So I, I wasn't judging it from a like, Oh, is Siegel going to pull it off? Um, but then watching that it, I was amazed at how much Siegel got right without it feeling like it's an impersonation or feeling like he's doing some, some sort of shtick. It's more, he was able to capture, capture the personality capture. Sure. There's mannerisms and things that, that he gets down, but it, it doesn't feel like he's just doing, um, you know, doing an person. We've been doing uh, Walter Brennan impersonations off mic all morning. Um, he, he's not doing that. He's, he's presenting David Foster Wallace as the essence of David Foster Wallace on screen. And I think he nails it. No, I, I completely agree. This is a fully realized performance and he absolutely, depending on what comes out later, but he absolutely should be nominated. Mm-hmm. I feel for this. Uh, what did you think of Jesse Eisenberg? I'll I'll throw that out to you first. I I think he's solid. I mean, I think he's pretty much always solid. Um, he he's sort of our foil here, and so um, I feel like he's given a little less to do. Perhaps he's not Mark Zuckerberg. He's he's the guy that kind of represents us in a way. Maybe not maybe not totally because he has that bit of fear and jealousy and that whole thing stewing. Um, I really liked him. I mean, I think. It's it's a certainly a smaller performance, certainly not not like he's doing nearly as much as Siegel, but uh, I thought he carried it well. What did you think? Um, I actually think, and this is more overarching, but I think that Jesse Eisenberg has hit a point in his acting career where he's not quite the level of a Woody Allen or a Michael Sarah, but his screen persona is really? you so... Put him, it, yeah. You put him below Michael Sarah. Well, no, I mean he's not quite as bad as to that oh, not, degree. Oh, not, not just the neuron. Okay, right, okay, yeah, but he's he's getting to the point wherever he is, his screen persona is so consistent within that box. I feel I, I don't feel that he's no. escaping it, and certainly not in this. I I really disagree, and I mean he's, I guess here he's not like doing something that's totally different, but it's not. It's not that Michael Sarah Woody Allen sort of just like nebbish, well. I don't mean he's playing. Guy. I don't. I don't mean um, he's playing a, a, a insecure person. I mean that Jesse Eisenberg. It seems like it's Jesse Eisenberg in every movie. Uh, his his screen you, his screen you, persona is so defined. Have you seen the double? I have seen the double, and I, and I was just getting ready to interject and say, with the exception of that, but within okay. this, it seems like it's Jesse Eisenberg playing Jesse Eisenberg uh, to to a degree, maybe, but a, a small degree. I feel, but I, I think the double to you know just kind of counter counter that the double is a perfect example of him playing to that. I mean, the, the one character, the nebbish character is playing that up more than ever, perhaps, but then he shows that he can do the exact opposite and, 
um, really, uh, really act on it and, and, uh, just counter, counter that with confidence and with, you know, a, uh, commanding presence. Well, so. no, and, and no, the double's magnificent, but this, and then a lot of his other work has seemed, I don't want to go so far as to, it's a lowercase r repetitive. Okay. But I, mean, quite- I, I like him and I think, I, I don't know. I felt like it fit for for this, for what we needed from, from the Lipsky character. Well, let me ask you that then. Cause of course this is based on Lipsky's book. Mm-hmm. So you can't completely throw him under the bus, but what do you think Lipsky wanted? Cause the best I can construe is that he, at, on the one level he wanted to become, he wanted to be as good as David Foster Wallace and realized he couldn't. So there's that insecurity. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, in order to reach Foster Wallace's level and advance his own career, he had to take advantage of the man via his profile. And that's a very fascinating dichotomy there. And I don't think that was fully explored in this film. You know, I, I don't think he's trying to capitalize on or ride the coattails of David Foster Wallace. And I think that's where the most interesting dynamic between the two comes in is because throughout this, there's this relationship kind of forming, but it's under, you know, the pretense of, I'm a reporter following you, getting, you know, getting to know you to profile you for this piece. It's not a real friendship. It's this relate, this working relationship sort of thing. While at the same time, Lipsky is looking at what's happened to David Foster Wallace in his becoming famous, in his becoming extremely, you know, like everyone is just praising him and he wants that. But on the other side, David Foster Wallace is experiencing it and trying to warn him and say, like, you think you want this, but you don't. Like the, it's, it's just going to be like, if you, if you reached this level of, um, everyone paying attention to you, it would, you know, ultimately be a roller coaster ride of emotion for you. And, you know, this is happening at the very end of the tour for infinite jest. So he's been, I don't know, I think a couple months out, um, you know, pushing this book and it's, it's at the very end. So, uh, Wallace sees, the end coming. He sees everything about to just drop off completely. And suddenly it's not going to be the, Oh my gosh, you're the best. You're the greatest. Um, it's going to go back to normal. It's going to go back. He has the line about when this is over, I go back to knowing 20 people. And, you know, Wallace is an interesting figure in that he's solipsistic is probably the wrong word, but he is like totally in his head all the time. He's always analyzing what he's saying and doing. And so he he's also always looking to the future, looking into that void that obviously he's he's brilliant, but he can't determine what's going to happen. And I think that kind of is driving him a little mad. You know, that drives some of his depression and his um, at one point, his ex-girlfriend from grad school says he's something like he was pleasantly unpleasant in grad school. And there's this, like, he's not, he's not a bad guy. He's not trying to be a bad guy, but he also lets his emotions get the best of him. And so he sees it as almost a Holden Caulfield catcher in the rye, like warning. He's trying to say to Lipsky, like, you think you want this, but you don't. But then in that regard, then isn't the Lipsky character, if the Lipsky character is that less broadly defined, then isn't the character almost interchangeable couldn't have been played by anybody or written to be anything. I mean, that's why I'm saying he's the foil though. He's our entry point. But yeah, but what I'm saying is that wouldn't it have been that And you know, you can't really compare. It's a, it's a mistake to compare something that's good to something that could have been better. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I think I would have enjoyed it more if it was one played by a different actor, perhaps a more, uh, a, a more versatile actor. And then also if, if we, if Lipsky's almost con- conflict, internal conflict uh-huh. about his relationship with Wallace were more, uh, not clearly defined, but more broadly defined because the conflict of a person having to exploit their hero in order to become hit at his level, mm-hmm. that's great cinema. That's great drama, but, it, and it, it, but I guess it's just not the movie they wanted to tell. Or yeah. The story and they and I guess to tell. you're in an interesting place here where you kind of have to play. You've got two sides. You've got, um, the side that is let's present it as it happened or as close to it happening as we know, or let's make it a, film yeah enhance the drama and i think uh for better or worse they err more on the side of let's play it closer to reality or what what our perception of reality was and it sounds like that's kind of what you're no absolutely yeah no i i like i said i enjoyed the movie it's just all throughout i was kind of thinking 
I was almost regretful that it was nonfiction because mm-hmm. I was thinking how much more dramatic, capital D dramatic, could it have been if they explored some of these conflicts, both with David Foster Wallace and with Lipsky. Yeah, I, I and that's that's true. Like I, one of my notes was like this movie doesn't really have spoilers. Like I feel like you could know every beat of the movie and it would still be enjoyable if it's your sort of thing going in and experiencing those conversations, experiencing those, those moments where Wallace just goes off on a topic. Um, those were the things, those were my favorite parts where it's just trying to keep up with these ideas that he's, he's spewing. And I, and I think to speaking of those moments, one of the ones that's gotten the most mainstream attention and one of the ones that I personally enjoyed the most was the Alanis Morissette dialogue. Can you tell me about that poster over there? Alanis? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm susceptible like everybody else. What? I mean, she's pretty, all right, but it is like she is the pretty. only thing in there. She's pretty in a very sloppy, very human way. Huh. You know, she's got this like squeaky, orgasmic quality to her voice. Here's what it is. A lot of women in magazines are pretty in a way that is not erotic because they don't look like anybody that you know. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, like you can't imagine them putting a quarter in a parking meter or like eating a bologna sandwich. Whereas Alanis Morissette, I can and have imagined her just like chowing down on a bologna sandwich. (laughs) I find her absolutely riveting. What I liked about that, number one, is it was kind of a nice little bit of 90s nostalgia, yeah. which, believe it or not, that was 20-something years ago. It's it's hard to believe. But also, it, it humanized him in such a way. Here he is, a grown man, mid-30s, and yet he's got a poster yeah. of a musician on his kitchen wall. So, I, it, that almost implies that there's a level of immaturity mm-hmm. to this guy. Even if he's considered a brilliant novelist, he's still a fanboy. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the first moments where you really see that he is a vulnerable figure. I mean, when you first meet David Foster Wallace, uh, when uh, David Lipsky calls him, Wallace's first, the first thing we hear from him is, how did you get this number? And Lipsky says something to the effect of like, your your publicist emailed it to me or something. And then Wallace's reply is, do me a favor and lose it. And so it's, it's very cold. And then whenever Lipsky gets there, one of the first things we hear from Wallace is something like, that was 95% a joke. And so you're really not sure. Like my initial reaction to him was like, this guy's kind of a dick. Um, well, all, through, all throughout that movie, he never really lets Lipsky in at any time. And I, you kind of touched on the second ago is anytime it looks like he's getting, he's going to be buddy, buddy with this guy. He turns around most of the time because of something Lipsky did, but he turns around and says, we're not going there. Don't do that. Yeah. But I, I think it's, I think it's his own. I, I never think it's like offensively trying to attack Lipsky other than maybe that time in the kitchen. Right. It's more like it's, it's always trying to, to guard himself, trying to keep himself from falling into falling into some sort of, you know, depression or something. And, you know, it's funny you bring up the Atlantis uh, moment because there's a kind of callback to it later on when it's, I think they're in Minneapolis and it's David Foster Wallace, David Lipsky, uh, David Foster Wallace's ex-girlfriend from grad school, and then a fan of his that wrote him. Uh, they're all in a car and that song, um, you ought to know, you ought to know that come the, on, man, come yeah, on. The, you ought to know the, I was going to say the song about Dave Coulier, um, is playing and everyone, but David Foster Wallace is singing along to it and having a great time. And David Foster Wallace is kind of, you know, in his head as he often is. And there's a moment like it's basically the button of the scene. They're all singing and the music comes up and the line, did you forget about me? Mr. Duplicity um, kind of rings out. And then we go on to the next scene. And my initial reading of that was like, oh, it's commenting on Wallace kind of being an a-hole. Um, but then thinking on it more, I feel like it's probably actually commenting on what's going on in Wallace's head at the time. You know, he's he's seeing himself as Mr. Duplicity. He's seeing himself as like, people are think I'm great and they really don't understand. Um, I, I thought that was a, a really nice, uh, fairly subtle touch to, to kind of put us in uh, Wallace's headspace. Well, I think the key, really the key description of the film is whenever he makes almost the Socratic statement of what makes me brilliant, as it were, is the fact that I don't think I'm brilliant. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of a line from Infinite Jest, which I haven't read, but I looked up this line where he said, what makes us identical is we all think that we're unique. And so that would, I would say that more than anything, it defines who David Foster Wallace was and how he saw himself and then what is on display in this film. Yeah, It reminds me of a Chris Rock quote. I'm not sure if you've ever heard this before, but Chris Rock 
uh, is actually a really insightful person, and he said that being a comedian is so frightening and tough because you notice everything. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's was a lot the same. It's a lot the same for Ryder, and I imagine that's what David Foster Wallace was going through. Is he noticed everything? And so the reason he didn't want to sing is because it seemed phony to him. Yeah, yeah. And so Which goes back to Holden Caulfield. Yeah, it, it goes phoniness. to well, and Holden Caulfield, who was Holden Caulfield, but J.D. Salinger. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that kind of describes David Foster Wallace's dilemma: is that he notices everything, and he doesn't feel unique. Because he knows yeah, everybody and, feels that and, way. You know, he has that that other line about writers, and he says, "I don't think writers are smarter than other people. I think they're more compelling in their stupidity or in their confusion." You know, basically saying like writers can just articulate their uh, not knowingness better than than we can. Right? They just they just tell the truth and tell it well. Yeah. So uh, to go back to our bulletin board and take the pen out of the bulletin board. Uh, I imagine that you like the contracted bio biopic or biopic yeah. more so than I, the cradle I mean, of the grave. Yeah. And I think it's just, it doesn't always work. Like I, I've seen parts of theory of everything, which wasn't my cup of tea. Um, I don't think I can see that cause it stole the Oscar from Michael Keaton. And that just yeah. so disturbs me, but go, I'm sorry. Anyway. Um, um, so I, I don't think it's the answer, but I definitely welcome it. As opposed to the just formula that for a long time, I mean, it felt like when we were getting like Ray and walk the line and all that. And then, and then that's all followed by walk hard, which is sort of like the, once you get a parody that that's that spot on, you kind of have to start changing things up a bit. Um, I, I welcome the change in format. I'm not, you know, not to say that it always works, but it's, it's nice to at least see that they're trying. I think it's kind of a modern conceit, a contemporary conceit, if you will, that as opposed to looking at a person's life and trying to just know their greatness, we don't, we're not after knowledge anymore. We're after understanding. Yeah. And so we highlight a key moment in their life and try to understand them based on this key moment, as opposed to looking over their entire life and getting knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be a huge conversation. So I probably shouldn't even say it, but something like Lincoln Lincoln, the recent Lincoln was just about a single, a singular event. Yeah. And the same length of time, two and a half to three hours, if that were his entire life, I think I would have liked that film just as much. So I'm not, biopic is not, the shortened biopic is not something that I'm, that I like more. It just depends on the subject. Yeah. And I think they get at different things. That's ultimately like my, my sort of feeling. And I think for David Foster Wallace, it makes so much sense to do something. And granted, like we're coming, they're coming off the source material of the book. So naturally this is how um, how it would be. But um, I, there could still be a time when, you know, a studio would have said, okay, we're going to take this, but then transform it into a, uh, some sort of uh, cradle to grave thing where we, we finally get the tour, you know, in a place and then, and then book in that with his tragic uh, suicide. Right. And, and that would have been absolutely the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Uh, this is completely innocuous uh, train of thought here, but how, lame a title is the end of the tour it it, it, you know it it's lame it definitely didn't catch my attention uh when uh you know when i saw that trailers were coming out and everything but uh i mean it's fine well you have something better well and now and you'll wind up becoming yourself i think Mm. is it would have been a much better tour because one of those things that doesn't really fit on a a not exactly not not comfortably but at the same time i think like you i've had the experience of oh i just saw the oh what do you call it the david foster wallace film oh the end of the tour Yeah, yeah that's very very weak title that's true so rather than asking you your favorite moment from the film i'm going to ask you do you think now you are going to attempt the 72 ounce stake of novels <laughs> and read infinite jest? Um, hard to say. I, my initial reaction is no, because I've been reading the autobiography biography of Mark Twain or volume one of it for years. And, um, I just, you know, I'm a very slow reader. I am borderline illiterate as you know, and it takes me a long time to get through stuff. And basically the only time that I really get to sit and read is like when I go on vacation, I think I would have to take a, you know, three month backpacking trip through Europe to get through this. And then I, if I'm doing that, I don't want his giant three pound book in my backpack. Well, and you would also not see Europe. You would just be going to a different place to read a mag, a massive novel. I think you've got the right idea though, is maybe just do a chapter 
a week or something over the course of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And maybe then you can get through. But I, I have been reading a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, uh, which is a collection of essays that um, he wrote, which is where that uh, um, profile on the David Lynch film is. And I really am enjoying that. So maybe, maybe I'll baby steps get to it one day, but who knows? It'll probably have to be when I'm retired in, you know, 30 years. Okay. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that uh, you recommend this film. I, I highly recommend this film. This is like surprisingly one of my favorite films of the year. All right. Fantastic. Um, I think I, I don't share your sentiment. That's one of my favorites, but at the same time, I really enjoyed it and I would recommend it as well. Now, given that David Foster Wallace was a recovering alcoholic, I'm hoping that your recommendation today will be Diet Coke. You mean Diet Right? Yes, excuse me, Diet Right. Will you be recommending Diet Right next time you see End of the Tour? I actually considered, uh, you know, going that direction. And um, I guess much like David Lipsky um, in The Ex-Girlfriend's Apartment, I decided to zig instead of zag. So you you have no intention of declaring your sobriety? Uh, no, um, this is actually, so I, I went a completely different direction, but I still think it is in an essence, very fitting. And, you know, normally my beer recommendations are intended to be consumed while viewing the film I pair them with. Uh, but for this ale, it's probably best to savor it immediately following your screening of the end of the tour. Uh, if we average plebeians are Bud Light, then it stands to reason that David Foster Wallace just might be a barley wine from Denmark's original gypsy brewer, McKellar. It's called Big Worcester, and it boasts an absurd alcohol content of 16.5% by volume. Uh, much like my knowledge of David Foster Wallace, my, my knowledge of barley wine should probably be categorized as fledgling. Nonetheless, I know what I like, and I really like this one. It's extraordinarily sweet with a good bit of fruitiness that deceptively masks the booze it's packing. Uh, I initially purchased this bottle on a whim, knowing next to nothing about it. And uh, a little over halfway through the class, I found myself in an accidental state of pure inebriation. Far more people have purchased Infinite Jest than have actually completed it. And I suspect the same could be said for polishing off a bottle of this. But unlike Wallace's daunting masterpiece, at least you can split this with a buddy. So here's the plan. Pick up a bottle, or two if you're feeling daring, throw them in the fridge, see the end of the tour with a friend, then stay up late sipping barley wine and debating the finer points of the film and David Foster Wallace's take on the world. That's Big Worcester from McKellar. Or perhaps if you don't want to stay up late in your home, you could be like David Foster Wallace and perhaps consume this at a diner. At IHOP or one yeah. of the other. That was actually, Sneak that's something we should have to say about this is David Foster Wallace clearly shares my Midwesterners love of <laughs> the chain diner. Uh-huh. So that's another part of this film that we absolutely need to highlight. Yeah, certainly. The end of the tour is currently playing in art house and multiplex theaters nationwide. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at war starts at midnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear your voice. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss funny folks without the jokes. It's for your own. It's for your own goodness sake. It's for your own protection from steps that you might take. I'm selfish there, I said it. It scares me when I see. By donning the spectacles, beard, and bandana of novelist David Foster Wallace, Jason Siegel joins a formidable fraternity of funny folks who have taken on traumatic roles. Many, like Siegel, were actors first and foremost, who made their name and earned their fame in comedic roles before returning to dramatic parts. People like Tom Hanks or Michael Keaton spring to mind. Still others were comedians to the core. Robin Williams, Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, Adam Sandler, Jim Carrey. The list goes on and on and on. These superstars conquered the world as comics, yet to be taken seriously as actors, they had to demonstrate their dramatic chops. Some succeeded, and some made Spanglish. Not even his worst. 
Death may be easy and comedy may be hard, to paraphrase the late Edmund Gwynn, but for some strange reason, Hollywood has always had a stigma against silliness. The result is a stored history of comedians losing the laughter to chase the adulation and, yes, some shiny gold awards as well. Today, Chris and I will be discussing comedic actors playing traumatic roles in a special features topic we'll call Funny Folks Without the Jokes. Before we begin, let's first address a larger question. Chris, why does Tinseltown have a big a tree against comedy? Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I... I feel like that's one of those things that you can, yes, you can definitely lodge that against, you know, say, oh, Hollywood, Hollywood looks down on, on the comedy, but in the end, like, do they really, I mean, other than the, the Academy Award, you know, award show sort of, sort of stuff, like comedies still make them good money for. They make them good uh, money, but as far as critical adulation, well, I, I probably shouldn't even say critical adulation as far as the ones that actually get the attention. And the performances that are truly praised and glorified, it's usually people crying. That, and that's fair. But that doesn't, I don't know. I just, I don't care about, I don't care about those things. Yeah, and that, well, and that's fair enough, as I think you and I have articulated in the past how little credence we give the Academy Awards anymore. Mm-hmm. But it does sort of bother me that, say, a Robin Williams is not, is viewed as a terrific comedian, very funny guy, yeah. and almost dismissively, oh, he's he's very funny, he was very funny, but as soon as he's in, say, Goodwill Hunting or Dead Poet Society, then all of a sudden, oh, wow, he's, yeah, he's yeah. kind of a genius. Well, he was already a genius, and perhaps even more so as a comedian. So, that's that's that seems to me to inspire why these actors, or rather comedians, want to take on these dramatic roles, and many times... Even though it oftentimes produces good work, many times it's just foolhardy. You know, and I think comedians honestly are very, um, very good figures for jumping into drama because I've said this before. I think comedy is the hardest thing to get right. And so uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I feel like and this is, you know, call me out if this is totally dismissive, but I feel like drama is a little bit uh, going to be a little bit easier to approach. I mean, all you have to, I mean, if you're Naomi Watts, you, and this is very, very belittling and I apologize up front, but you know, you just don't put on makeup and mess up your hair and then suddenly you're getting Academy Award nominations. I thought you were actually going to reference that moment. I think in the Lynch movie, whenever she cries on command, Oh, <laughs> whenever you said, whenever you said Naomi Watts. Um, but you know, that's, that's sort of the, the thing that you always hear is like, oh, well, they, they got a beautiful actress got unpretty and now she's getting an Academy Award or a, a dramatic actor, or I'm sorry, a comedic actor um, plays either someone with a mental disability, a physical disability, something like that. And then they're, you know, getting praise. Um, it's, I mean, it's showier. Obviously, everyone's different. Individual choices are being made here. But do you think that a comedic actor takes on a dramatic role? Do you think they do it because, oh, it's just such a juicy, meaty part and I just have to do this movie? Or do you think they're doing it because they want to be taken seriously? I, I'm going to say third option or I, I, my my idealistic view would say third option. That is they want the challenge. They want to they want to try something that isn't necessarily in their wheelhouse because otherwise they're maybe making Paul Blart three or uh, best friend. What's the, uh, the, the, the Adam Sandler buddies, uh, hanging grown out ups. grown ups, grown ups, 18. So is the implication there is that a Academy award nominated performance from Kevin James should be forthcoming. <sighs> Maybe. And if so, what would it be? I can't even begin to imagine. I think hmm. he'd be a good labor leader in a film. I could see that. Yeah. See that. You know, I think the, uh, I think the Coen brothers could do something with him. Very nice. Well, okay. That's another question. Do you think that directors do it because they genuinely see something in these comedic actors or do you think it's a part of its stunt casting? Um, I, once again, I, I would love to say that they, they genuinely see something. I mean, um, when, when you brought up this topic, uh, one of the first things that I actually thought of, of is the uh, just finished FX show Justified. Did you ever watch that? Uh, I have not, no. It was packed full. Like, I, I would love to know who did the casting on that show because it was packed full of comedians doing um, sometimes semi-comedic roles. Like, Pat Oswald was in it the last few seasons, and he was kind of comedic relief, but not, you know, not on the level of, like, he's doing um, stand up or anything. He's not then, falling through walls or something. Yeah. Uh, you, you have people throughout who, um, you're used to laughing at, but they actually gave these really, really great, um, 
solid performances. And uh, very quickly, you know, it wasn't like, oh, hey, there's a funny person being serious. Like you, I, I very quickly accepted them in a more dramatic uh, piece. And so um, I would love to, I would love to say that it's uh, because they see it in them, but who knows? Well, and so maybe this is just my own prejudice, but anytime I do see a comedian, except for someone who's next level talented, like Steve Martin or Robin Williams, anytime I see a comedian in a dramatic role, I'm taken out of it. Because I think I know what you're doing. You're trying to be taken seriously as an actor, and it just it irritates me. Okay, you might we, say. we've thrown several stones at Adam Sandler. Let's talk about him for All a right. little bit. Um, how do you feel about Punch Drunk Love? I thought Punch Drunk Love was terrific, but I think that was a situation where it was written so keenly aware of his abilities and limitations that as long as he followed orders, as it mm. were, it was going to work out well. Whereas anytime he's tried to escape that. Well, it, and that's the thing is I feel like Punch Drunk Love is the exception to the rule with Adam Sandler. Um, that it's it's almost uh, that that um, that character is playing to the melancholy other side of the coin to what Sandler is always doing. Um, and I, I think that's a situation where P.T. Anderson saw a very specific way that he could use Sandler that he hadn't been used before. So he's maybe one that's less versatile. But someone like Robin Williams um, did many great things as as a dramatic actor from, as you mentioned, Dead Poet Society and Goodwill Hunting, um, The Fisher King. Uh, he was super creepy in one, one hour photo. I don't know if you ever saw that. Yeah. Um, a little less creepy in insomnia, but, you know. He had the chops, but, you know, he was also a much better comedian as well, a much better, like, just he had that ability to really become a chameleon in a lot of ways. You know, he sometimes would do uh, impersonations of people doing impersonations. Well, I would like to not to not let's rewind the tape a little bit far okay. back. Uh, I w- Let's consider perhaps comedians in the 30s and 40s. And I'm not just talking about actors who did comedy and drama like a Cary Grant or Catherine Hepburn, mm-hmm. but I mean like a W.C. Fields. W.C. Fields, except for, I believe, a uh, Charles Dickens picture. Was it Great Expectations? Sure, it, man. Okay, yeah, sure. He, um, but by and large, a comedian like W.C. Fields or the Marx Brothers or the Three Stooges, they were comics. Yeah. And they yeah. never attempted to get dramatic. So in many ways, I almost prefer that. It seems to have more integrity than someone who feels like they need to, I don't want to say sell out, but feels like they need to take on a dramatic role in order to reach that next level. It's someone saying, no, I'm a comedian. This is what I do. And this is what I'm going to embrace. But I think you're, I mean, that's a very cynical approach to say that like they're doing it specifically to, um, try to mix it up or whatever. And, and, and did almost stunting, um, you know, saying, I mean, I'm going to accept this purely because people won't expect it or purely for, for that purpose. I mean, I, but in my defense, I don't think that whenever you're discussing Hollywood and the machinations of Hollywood, <laughs> okay. that cynicism is ever a wrong way of approaching it. Okay. What about Michelle Gondry putting Jim Carrey in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? And that worked out very well. I mean, and, that, that and Truman Show worked out very well, but at the same time, there was also the Majestic. The, and the number 23. And yeah, Oh, yeah. And then, then Joel Schumacher in number 23. And there's no way that with a Joel Schumacher mocker directing your picture there's no way that he didn't do that just to throw people off oh look yeah. it's jim carrey being a bad guy yeah but it also wasn't the first time he had you know he had done it, it wasn't like jim carrey has only been the mask and ace ventura up until this point now he's in the number 23 so yeah whatever joel schumacher i i mean it's sure it maybe maybe this is a, a matter of it fall balls in both of our courts um but I don't know. Like you've also got guys like Peter Sellers who were, you know, he was versatile back in the day. He uh, did a lot of comedy. You know, he did Pink Panther. He did Dr. Strangelove, but then also uh, being there with Hal Ashby, which is a very interesting, weird, nuanced performance. Um, Lolito, which is kind of on the fence of uh, drama and comedy a little bit. Um, Not so much comedy, but absurdity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Then. So let's, then let's uh, kind of, think of who we think are really good at this we've already mentioned robin williams was almost consistently good at this and anytime mm-hmm. he wasn't good it was more the picture that was bad and less him uh jim carrey it's more 70 30 he's made some bad decisions yeah, and yeah. they haven't turned out well and i would think that in he's a person anyway who's more concerned with commercial benefits are there any other people that jump out as someone who is a really good at transitioning from comedy to drama okay let me i i'm just going to give you kind of a rapid fire list here and then you can pick and choose All what right, you, we'll you want to uh ben stiller i think was really great in greenberg which still had 
comedic. I like bits. him better. I honestly like him better as a dramatic actor. Okay. His um, kind of Zoolander stuff. Well, but even anyway. even in Royal Tenenbaums, like that's a comedic film. Yeah. He's very much not really playing it for right. Comedy. His comedies irritate me honestly. Um, Albert Brooks, I really liked in Taxi Driver, which is a small part, but then also in Drive, where he's super. Oh creepy. yeah, he was absolutely terrifying. And I think that actually plays more. It plays better because you think of Albert Brooks as everyday funny haha sort of guy. Well, and, and also speaking of driving, maybe you're going to get to this, but Brian Cranston too. Mm-hmm. That's another example of, but yeah, Brian, I think Brian Cranston is one of those guys that people, depending on where they first saw him, that's how they think of him. Because exactly. some people, some people think of him as the dad and Malcolm in the middle. Some people think of him as, uh, you know, the guy from breaking bad. It's sort of, he's sort of a mixed bag. He's, he's very much a comedian. He would qualify as an actor who start, who got famous doing comedy parts. Yeah. 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 Which I, I think is sort of where Siegel ultimately falls Absolutely, as well. Yeah. Um, Michael Keaton, I don't think you're going to debate with me on, on that no, one. No, let's continue going. Yeah. Um, uh, Jamie Foxx, I think is actually probably better as, uh, a dramatic actor, you know, Agreed, like yeah. we, you know, we talked about collateral earlier. He was great in Ray. Even if I don't love that film, he did, did a great job with it. And, and then guys like Jonah Hill, I think is very good when used properly by guys like Martin, Martin Scorsese. And then, uh, you know, Robert Downey Jr. Is a guy who, I don't think he's ever done anything. Well, maybe he has. He did that movie with uh, Jamie Foxx, actually, that no one saw. The Soloist. The Soloist, yeah. Um, I never saw that, so maybe maybe I'm going to that, that title was very words. appropriate, The Soloist, yeah. Um, but he's he's a guy that I think uh, can you know can bring some gravitas, even if he's. I I think of him more as very much a comedic actor. And that's maybe more personality than anything, right? And so, and and so, then again, I think we go back to the distinction between actors who can do both comedy mm-hmm. and drama parts, and then comedians. Are there any funny folks who you haven't seen in a dramatic role that you would like to see uh, try on those pants? <laughs> try on those pants. Um, actually, the person who I want to see try on uh, pants that are contrary to the pants they normally wear. And this doesn't answer your question. It actually inverses it is Daniel Day Lewis. Oh. Daniel Day Lewis in a comedy. I'm not sure. I think it, how I think that it would, would have work. to be a musical comedy. Well, wasn't that what uh, Nine was, which was based oh, about right. eight and a half? Right. Yeah. And I, never, I, I, I only saw it. bits and pieces of it. And I don't think it was a comedy, per okay. se, a musical comedy. Okay. I, but I think, you know, I could definitely, like, if someone was to remake Singing in the Rain, Daniel Day-Lewis might be, he would he'd be dedicated enough to learn how to... Sing in the Rain. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, did you ever see Along Came Polly? Um, I saw enough of it. Like, the when I actually, when I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman roles, that's one of my favorite. Absolutely, with, yeah. With him playing the, the narcissistic uh, uh, guy who's putting on, producing, starring in uh, his, what, production of Hamlet or something. Yeah, he was actually better at playing the dumb fat guy than people who make a living at yeah. playing the dumb fat guy. He yeah. was better at it than, say, Jack Black. Is that where you were going with it? Was, yes, no, absolutely, okay. yeah. Anytime I can throw Jack Black under the bus, that's an example of someone who he, he who I don't really think he's funny, but even in drama parts, it's just abysmal. I think he I, really I like hurt him. King Kong, for instance. <laughs> God, I think the length of King Kong hurt King Kong. There are many things. Which I say as someone who hasn't ever sat through all for of that King ver- Kong. For that very reason. Yeah. So you don't have anyone that you can think of comedic You know, not that, jumping out, out okay. at me right now. I, I imagine really, you do. I really threw a softball at you there. I know, and I didn't have our, one. Our, our buddy Bill Hader. Well, um, no, he was in Skeleton he was Twins. In, and, and that's what I was going to say is like he was in Skeleton Twins, which I think was a good attempt. But I, I would love to see him do more. I would love to see him get something that... Um, because that skeleton twins felt very, and maybe, you know, to, did you see it? I to, have. Yes. Okay. To, uh, maybe it's what it was trying to do because of, you know, the subject matter it was dealing with, but it felt like it was kind of all over the place with it's, you could say it's a dark comedy, but it's like, it just, it felt very manic in tone. And I would like to see him maybe try something that is, you know, just straight. Yes. Serious. I would like to see him in a biopic about someone with AIDS <laughs> during the Holocaust. That's, that's the dramatic role he needs to take on. And then Oscar Gloria will rain down on him. And then we'll get the scoop and we'll get the, uh, the first and only, we can him, only right? hope. Well, Chris and I, speaking of being manic and all over the place, Chris and I have pretty much crisscrossed all over. So hopefully you dear listener can bring some focus to this. Who are some comedians who have never taken on dramatic parts that you'd like to see? If you want to share that with us, please do so at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. I wish I could say it. Let's keep it I guess.
recommendation time again. Um, I'm curious what you have to recommend. Uh, I recently noticed that the audiobook of Infinite Jest is 52 hours long, so I'm hoping you have some meaty 52-hour documentary for us. Yes, if you were to, say, travel cross-country and visit every state in the Union, plus Canada and Mexico, as provided there's not a wall dividing us by that point, I would recommend listening to Infinite Jest. However, just for the time being in the course of this episode, I had another recommendation, but than last night happened, and so I'm going to have oh. to call an audible. Okay. I'm going to recommend a double feature of A Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street is a little bit dated, but at the same time, it's... Of, of the uh, time. Yeah, it's very much of the time, and it's a high point in the canon. And also, it's just a very imaginative piece of uh, genre fiction. And then Scream, I would say that Scream is lowercase b brilliant not uppercase b brilliant but lowercase okay and it's it's uh, certainly worth a watch so you can find both of those on netflix for the time being and you can also find the other scream films which i plan on digesting here shortly enough all of them uh i mean might as well okay. uh, might as well yeah. just see what happens just write it out yeah so a nightmare on elm street and scream both directed by the late wes craven i think i might uh check those out as well or in the case of uh, nightmare on elm street finish it but my recommendation for this week has a bit of a more linear connection to uh the film that we reviewed the end of the tour and that's almost famous by cameron crow which i would say is almost inarguably cameron crow's best film it's, in my opinion, a masterpiece. I love Almost Famous. It is a masterpiece. I think Jerry Maguire is better. But this is your recommendation. Please continue. Okay. I like Jerry Maguire. I like Jerry Maguire a lot. There was a time when Cameron Crowe made good movies. A long um, time ago, yes. But this is actually the movie I think that has, you know, I have seen so many bad Cameron Crowe movies because I love this movie so much. It's about a reporter, a Rolling Stone reporter, who goes on the road with a band, a fictional band called Stillwater, and um, kind of... You know, he's he's doing a profile piece on them. He's like, what, 15 years old and um, kind of it, it falls into that same sort of thing as the end of the tour with, you know, he kind of begins to become friends with him. It's got uh, a great performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman as the great rock journalist Lester Bangs. Um, this actually is we it's funny. This is very like I was not planning this. But there's a whole lot of comedians in this movie who are cast not playing necessarily comedic roles. Uh, Mark Maron is in this movie. Mitch Hedberg is in this movie. Um, Justin Long, who at the time was just a you know kid, uh, is in this movie. Um, there's a bunch of others as well that are just sort of you know they're they're just sort of either uh, members of other bands or whatever you know they're not major uh, uh, folks. But even Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Fallon plays their new tour manager and not playing necessarily I thought you said comedians, Jimmy Fallon has oh, that boy. count. <laughs> okay. Um, but here's, here's the thing. If you haven't seen almost famous, watch this version that's on Netflix. If you have seen almost famous, I highly recommend that you seek out the director's cut of this movie. It's, it's quite a bit longer. I want to say it's like 45 minutes longer um, or so, but I have never seen a comparison of a theatrical release and a director's cut where like in hindsight, um, having seen the, the director's cut, I'm amazed that the theatrical release works. There's so much like, and I think, like I said, I think it's a masterpiece, but there is so much that is cut out in like building character context and that sort of thing that somehow still like, I, I guess I just feel like, 
if I was putting myself in Cameron Crowe's shoes as he had to cut this down from studio notes and say, there's no way we're releasing a two and a half hour, nearly three hour, whatever it, it turns out to be film about, you know, about this kid going on tour with a band. You got to get this down to a tight 120 minutes. Like the, the decisions that he made would have been terrifying if I was in his shoes. And I think he did a really good job. Um, and, uh, I think the, the theatrical release, certainly it's, it's a wonderful movie on its own, but I think seeing the director's cut, you'll be amazed at what he pulled out of it. That, that actually does expand on the story more if, if you like this and amazed at how it, uh, he, he was able to pull all those things out and still make the film work. And one scene that he cut out, I think even before the director's cut, I don't believe it's in the director's cut, but the finale of the film. It was originally Francis McDormand, the mother, mm-hmm. and then the characters listening to the entirety of Stairway to Heaven. So seven minutes of <laughs> people listening to a, a song. So that probably wasn't that hard to cut out that scene right, right there. Right. And no, that's not in the director's cut, but uh, that's almost famous. It's uh, it's on Netflix in the theatrical version, or you can find it on Amazon in the, the director's cut, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. And I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit because Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe's other masterpiece is also on Netflix. So this should be kind of interesting for our listeners. Watch Cameron Crowe's two masterpieces and then watch Wes Craven's two masterpieces and then and uh-huh. decide for yourself which of those you would say is tops over the other. <laughs> but that's unfair because Cameron Crowe's made so many bad movies. That Well, I mean, but at the same time, Scream 3, so... That, Which, I don't know, maybe a masterpiece. I haven't seen it. We'll yeah, fi- I'll find yeah, out shortly. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. You can check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com, and there you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Midweek Memo. What is The Midweek Memo, you're asking? Well, it's filled with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and exclusive articles written just for you. Yes, you. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, it's pretty safe to assume you like us. So why don't you stop what you're doing right now and leave us a review in iTunes? It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. Because honestly, don't you want to be the hipster type who gets to say that you listen to War Starts at Midnight before it got famous? The only way you can do that is to review us on iTunes and let the world know about us. However, there are some of you who might be Craven or Crow haters and have just been hate listening through these entire credits, in which case, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com or give us a call on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Music on this week's show comes from Tyler James. Find out more at tylerjames.com. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing the dramatic reunion of Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig in Mistress America. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for listening, guys. Adios, muchachos. Ponsel could have shown us where David Foster Wallace... Say it like Walter Brennan. <laughs> Ponsel could have shown us where David Foster Wallace came from and how he went about amassing. Yep, that's <laughs> that's the secret. Uh, what is the midweek wimp? <clears throat> what is the midweek wimp? <clears throat> Tune in next time when we be. <clears throat>